Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. Perhaps you've seen our series on leveraging your privilege. We look for opportunities to highlight folks who are understanding and becoming aware of their social identity and leveraging the privileges that they have to shine a light on barriers of oppression and systems that oppress other folks. And today we have with us Richard Demsick. He's a former pastor in Vero Beach, Florida, and he ran with Ahmad, but not in the way that most of us ran, right? Like I threw on my shoes, I went to run in the neighborhood. Well, he took a different twist to make a point as a white man. And so I want to share with you his story and his thinking. So thanks so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I didn't want to give it away, although people have probably seen the video. Um, what led you to run with Ahmad, period? And then let's talk about why you did it in the way okay, that you did it. Yeah. And I'll say this too. I had no idea who Ahmad was 24 hours before the run. I probably found out maybe 15 hours before I decided to run something like that. I saw on Instagram a post from a friend of mine who is a white single mother. Uh, sorry, I have my cat's jumping on me. That's anyway, okay. Cats are welcome. She's a great girl. And she posted this thing on I'm running with Ahmad. And I was like, who's Ahmad? And so... I'm a little bit of a nerd. I started studying. I started w reading every article I could and, of course, watched the video. And when I watched the video, I started bawling. I started crying. And honestly, I still close my eyes and I see the video because that sticks with you. And unfortunately, those are the moments. I, it's, it's tragic to say, but those are the moments that a lot of people from my community, I think, need, that I needed. Let's just say for my personal experience, I needed to wake up and pay attention. And the moment I saw that video, I immediately was like, well, I'm definitely running for Ahmad. Like, I'm running with Ahmad for sure. And I just thought, you know, I want to run with a TV. And I want to do that to show that looking like a suspect is not the problem. It's not, oh, if Ahmad just wasn't someone that they suspected was a burglar, none of this would happen. Because I could be very suspect. I can look as suspect as possible, and I bet nobody's going to give me any problems. So I told my parents, I said, I think I'm going to run with a TV for this, uh, for this young man who, was di who died. And they hadn't heard the story either, and I shared it with them. And their only concern was they said that some people of the, uh, the community of color might think that I was making light of all of it. And so I said, oh, you're right. That's smart. I shouldn't do it. And then the next morning, honestly, it was like, you know what? Forget this. I'm just going to do it. And so well, and as a black person, I think the black community absolutely appreciates when white folks step up to say, hey, this is a problem because we've been saying that for a while. So we sometimes will say, get your cousins. Right. Like, so as a white person, we appreciate when you are the ones saying to your family, your community, hey, y'all, like I'm looking suspect running with the TV <laughs> and I'm not getting called by the, I'm not getting the police called on me. I'm not getting hunted down. I'm not being attacked. I'm not being harassed. So I can't, of course, speak for the whole black community, but I know in the, in the social justice movement world, this idea of having allies, and some people even said like accomplices, people who are willing to be in it with you, mm. that's huge. 
I can't tell you how surprised I was by how positive the responses were and how like embarrassingly kind people were about this that it showed me how little support they that people got and I think not only from people of color but to use a, a phrase that you said earlier that the cis white man who used to be a pastor so this Christian Got conservative guy is going like I'm standing up for Ahmad. This and I guess I think that's part of it. I think the TV was of course the biggest part, but I think that that the people in my specific demographic, unfortunately, our voices are are shockingly silent from the conversation or vocal on the other side of it. And that, that why that. do you think why do you think Ahmad's story stuck out to you? Because Sadly, like in the black community, these stories and the names are all too familiar, right? So, you know, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. So Michael Brown was in our yeah. backyard. Von Derrick Myers was literally blocks from our home and where our kids went to school. Like, so there are names that strike us in the heart, right? And other cities and other places have their own names. What do you think it was about Ahmad that, that made his story be on your radar? I think it was a compound effect. That I absolutely, because I was in the conversations with my friends about all of the other cases, I, I definitely tried to find out all the information I could on that. And so I do think part of it was that at a certain point, we don't experience it like your community experiences it, but we do start to get frustrated because there's a lot of people in the white community that really do have a heart for people of color and go really another police officer like or really another black young individual is getting shot you know there's of course uh brianna taylor is another name that mm -hmm. you know is this and and i don't it's funny i know brianna taylor i don't even know the boyfriend's name who is arrested mm -hmm. who's arrested for defending for himself defending his house yeah against the cops who didn't have the right to be there and didn't you know alert the people that they were the police and i remember the phrase yeah. that they're supposed to do but they didn't say hey we're the police we're coming in there's hey people come in with guns in my house they're going to be met with guns that's, yeah that's reality yeah yeah but so what do you think the compound effect was just like hearing other people in your circle raise the awareness well, a little bit uh, so part of it though i will say is this is this simple it's i was given an action that i knew how to do I was given mm. instructions. It's funny because there has been some people that have criticized me and been like, oh, he's doing it for attention or whatever, which is fine. It comes with the territory. But the funny part to me is I was just following Sean King's instructions. Ah, so you follow Sean King and that's where you saw or well, the woman it, that you knew I, I do now. saw the call? I do now. We've talked uh -huh. now. But uh, at the time, I, it, was, it was via my friend. Who was, right, the, right. She follows Sean King and she, okay. you know, so, but it was, it was Sean King's instruction of exactly what I, I, I'm kind of, I'm a rebel in some ways, but I'm kind of a rule follower. That like, okay, got a white shirt. I did a tank top, but a white shirt. Okay. You know, I was supposed to run 2.23 miles. Okay. Right. That's the day of his death. Got it. All right. I'm supposed to, you know, hashtag I run with mod. I don't know why it wasn't on mod, but anyway, I run with mod. Okay. Got it. Did it. Right. And so I did everything that I was supposed to do. I just added the, the TV part of it. Okay. And 
it just went viral and then people all like kind of assumed that I intended for it to go viral and then I like planned this out. Interesting. Or that I was a very specific kind of person that was always like in this one political corner and I'm just, you know, I'm I'm an independent. I don't affiliate with any political party. There's there's parties where I line up with Republicans, there's part where I line up with Democrats. I grew up with a lot of liberal friends as a conservative and then I've kind of had my eyes open to see all the different sides. So this this I wasn't the guy who was like, oh, I'm going to be a social justice warrior. It was just like, mm -hmm. dude, that guy died and that's not okay. It was as simple as that. And then they're like, oh, and you can do this about it. And so I did what most millennials did do. I did as little as possible. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, little, I did a small little action. You gave me you gave me a simple step. All right, thanks, John. I can do that, no problem. And then I posted it, and then it got this huge reaction. So let's talk about when you went to do it. Were you nervous at all? No, not a little bit. Honestly, I could have waved a gun in the air and I wouldn't have been stopped. And there's some things that I've seen in the comments. Maybe somebody would have called the police but the police would have been like hey man that's not cool to wave a gun around here you got to put that gun away oh sorry right. officer all right have a good day yeah you too we'll talk later see you buddy you know that, that that's my experience and uh, you know when i see people's reactions to this there's some people like oh he's in his own neighborhood which is true it was my neighborhood it's not a neighborhood that i know um, I'm ashamed to say as a, as a former pastor, I've not done a good job loving my neighbors. I know two neighbors in this entire community. I was on streets. Nobody recognized me. I was on streets that I don't typically go. Um, and people would look at me suspiciously. And then they'd kind of nod and wave. Sometimes. Someone mm. to say, so should I be suspicious of this guy? No, no. He looks like the kind of guy that you know, never commits a crime. My favorite comment I got to say is this one person commented on this video and he goes, he goes, uh, plot twist. He actually did steal that TV and is running away from the scene of a crime. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Another person, so you this is going to be a negative effect because now white people know they can steal things and get away with it. They're going to start. Well, there's like them. a whole, there's a whole, I think, Reddit thread and I'm sure it's somewhere else too, yeah. where white people talk about the things that they've gotten away with that they know good and well, oh, like wow. if there were people of color, they would not. Yeah. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine. So you mentioned that this opened your eyes to white privilege. Yes. I was one of these individuals that when I first heard the concept, I remember arguing a long argument that white privilege did not exist. When I first heard it, it spelled to me this image of somebody shipping champagne and sitting on their yacht and going, yeah, so it wouldn't it be horrible to be poor, you know, and just enjoying their privilege. And it wasn't honestly until recently that I understood the depth. This is actually a theological term, but of depravity, the depth of depravity mm. that we treat individuals in this country, uh, specifically individuals of color in this, in this country. I've slowly had my eyes open. So Actually, you want to know what first started opening my eyes to what, what? Uh, people of color go through? Because it's kind of, it's surface level. It's pretty shallow, but it's hip hop. I was a dancer and I wanted to learn how to break dance. I wanted to learn how to do hip hop. So I started watching videos. Again, being a nerd, I didn't just listen to the music. I started studying the history. 
And I started hearing stories of inner city New York and inner city LA kids because it started two different movements that merged. Mm -hmm. And I heard these stories of this angst and trauma that their art expression really was forged in trauma. And so I started paying attention and I was like, this is not my world. This is weird. And then I would go to Detroit breakdancing competitions and they welcomed me. And I was, let, let me be very clear. I'm a very white. I mean, you can tell, you can see me, right? I'm a very white guy. I'm not just, I'm pale. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much just paper. Like you can hold a piece of paper and it's, it's hard to tell the difference. And when I went there, I went there as kind of like this, you know, little bit nerdy white guy who was like, hey, guys, can I dance with you? Is that OK? And, and they were like, yeah, man, once they once they saw that I could dance, they were like welcoming me in with open arms. And then I got to know their lives, which were so different than mine. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And and you I mean, you've talked about the struggles of people of color, but black folks in particular, like anti-blackness is something that has that has been woven throughout the history of our country. And it's a history that I think, I think we don't, we often try to try to sweep under the rug or just kind of uh, uh, tie up in a nice neat bow. Like we might talk about slavery and then it's over. Yeah. And we might talk about Jim Crow and then it's over. And we might talk about separate but equal and then Brown v. Board, right? Like we talk about it as if, we are we are over and we've overcome or we've gotten through these instances. And what you're talking about is just the lived experiences. And so when I teach about privilege, I tell people, it's not like you've been skipping through a field of daisies with a silver spoon in your mouth. Yeah, That's not what privilege is. It's not like you're saying down with people who aren't like me. It's that things are just set up to facilitate whatever that identity is. Right. Yeah. So things are just set up for me as a cisgendered person, a person who presents as the identity, the gender that I identify with, like things are set up mm. for me. Absolutely. I don't have to bump up against barriers. And that I think for white folks is sometimes hard to hear because they think, well, does that mean I didn't work for what I got? Well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you didn't have barriers that other people had and that it wasn't on accident. Yeah. That that's how we set things up. So it sounds like the contact you had with people and getting to know people is what helped break that up for you. Well, and what people have said that I've, I've now been hearing these new things and, and in these new circles where I'm hearing conversations I hadn't before. And a lot of people are saying white people, you see something, say something kind of thing. And I, I think that's great. I'm not, I'm not belittling that, but I think you don't even have to necessarily go that far. If, if this is what I've been trying to encourage, if we can get, the white community this is what i'm trying to do because i'm trying to correct my own community and saying guys mm -hmm. just listen because if if white people just start listening to people of color and what they're going through and you're right it's it's not an accident that people have the prejudice that they do there's not only a history of in, in their individual lives but our country's history our country's life life that that we've been having this lead to this point i do think we've progressed like i do think martin luther king jr did good it helped it's better than it was i don't think it's just underground but i do think so we talked about privilege and how the term gives you this image of a silver spoon and so people push against it but when they understand how bad and the lack of human decency we give people of color they go, oh, okay, 
yeah, you're right, I haven't experienced that. I kind of feel similar about the term racism. Okay, so someone's a racist. People are so terrified of being called a racist in today's society that they will push down even to, I, I believe, and you're the, the expert on this, but a level of subconsciousness all of their racism. So when they search their mind, they say, no, I'm not a racist. Everything in my mind says to me I'm not a racist. And, and so I, my point is, is that getting them to see their prejudgments, right, before you actually knew what was really going on. And of course, this Ahmad case is an example of like a prejudgment. Before they got to know Ahmad, before they talked to him, you know, if there was somebody who was suspicious, They'd probably ask me into a conversation before they just, hey, what are you doing? I'll chase, you know. Right, right, with a gun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 like a fish in water, you don't know you're wet though. So that's what's hard. When you have Absolutely. privilege, you don't you don't see it, you don't know it. And and to say to listen, that's beautiful. But I find that some folks, and not just white folks, but people with power in our systems don't believe the stories of people who don't have power. And so I just, I appreciate you for whatever reason, being willing to believe when maybe you've been conditioned to just think of that narrow stereotype of a black person and not believe their story or their lived experience or to blame it on individuals. And that's, I think, where we get stuck in our country is that we want to say, well, I'm a good person, so this doesn't happen. But we forget that the systems we've set up, the policies, the practices, the norms, the, the patterns are, are powerful. So I might be a really nice person, but if I'm living and working within a system that set up rules for me to, to have assumptions and to treat people differently, that, that it doesn't matter that I'm a good person. The system is broken. Or some people would say the system is working just like it's set up to work. It, it, yeah. And so what we have here <laughs> I almost fell into a movie line. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Right. And so when I, one of the conversations I had with an individual was like, okay, how do we get people like you into this conversation or into this activism, really activist to, to be able to take the action? I would say, well, we need help organizing and we need help communicating because mm -hmm. the, the people that their hearts, of course, there's different, different people that are, you know, white from different perspective. There are the outwardly white racist white people that are like they know they're racist and they just don't like people of color. And all of a sudden, and I've never really experienced this, but I'm like, I'm seeing people with KKK masks commenting threats on my Instagram and different things like that. And I'm like, wow, I, I thought they were gone. Like I didn't, I didn't know those people were still out there because yeah. I do think most Americans, and here's what it is. It's a fight for the, the lazy middle. That's what we're we're really doing here. We're fighting to try to wake up the lazy middle that are like, yeah, I don't really want to see black people dying, but I don't really want to do anything either. You know, it's interesting because I actually think it's a both and like, I yeah. think we've got to activate individuals. And if we don't think about also how to shift our policies, our practices, our norms, think about how people in positions of power can create different incentives and different dynamics. Like, for example, uh, when we think about how the schools teach about race relations in our country's history or teach about the history of race in our country, like there's a movement of educators who are saying we need to do better about educating our kids so that they can grow up to know the history 
and not have to relearn it just when they go to college, right? Because I teach college courses. And so oftentimes people talk about the, you know, the college campus being like the liberal, the bastion of liberal ideas. And it's like, well, we often tell full stories Mm. and young people don't know these stories. And so whether it's talking about Asian American history and the role of um, the Asian Americans in building the railroads or Vincent Chin being killed in Detroit or like there's so many stories that we don't get taught. So I, I digress, but I say also folks in power saying we need to make sure that we equip folks to understand this, um, these dynamics of race relations and the history of race in, in its fullness because we could be good people all day long, but we still have ways in which we've set up our neighborhoods, our schools, and the way that we do life that would keep us segregated and and separate from each other. I think that's a good good transition for one of the questions that I really had for you because yeah. speaking of both and and I'm not trying to lead you here. I'm really curious on your perspective. What do you see as the goal? Like like if we could describe the best image of utopia diversity here, what would it be in your eyes? So for me, it definitely wouldn't be colorblindness. So I hear people say, well, wouldn't you just want me to be colorblind? Didn't King want us to be colorblind? No. He said that I want people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. They, he didn't say don't see the color of their skin. That's a good right? point. Yeah. So he wanted us to be able to see the, the fullness of who we are, including our skin color, but not judge people on the basis of it. Absolutely. So from my perspective, it would be about seeing people in the fullness of who they are in terms of, in terms of their social identities, mm-hmm. all those variations and the beauty that that brings, whether it's, you know, sexual orientation, gender, identity, religion, mm-hmm. um, race, ethnicity, nation of origin, like to me, diversity, and not just me, research also shows that brings more creativity and better problem solving. Like I want that for our country, but it would also be about not, well, that would be a double negative. It would be about acknowledging power as well. So it's not just about representation Mm -hmm. or tokenism, but like really looking at how do we share power? And in this scenario to rectify where we are, how do we center those who are most marginalized? Yeah. So in my, if you're asking like what I think we need to do to get to equity, which was where people's social identities would not predict their outcomes. Like we shouldn't be able to predict who's going to graduate from college by race or class. We shouldn't be able to do that, but we can. I'm not here to, to solve the black man's problem. Like, are you kidding me? No, I'm hoping to, I'm for one, I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about people of color and their, and their circumstances. So I've been listening a lot and I've been listening to conversations. I'm not even a part of, like, I'm not uh, chatting. I'm just, I'm just, absorbing now because it's like okay if i'm going to be on this platform i need to learn some things but my my main hope is that i can you know wake some white people up i guess there's some connotation but like that i can help with the white problem because this first of all it's a human problem but there's a white contributing factor to this that is still often a negative one mm-hmm. yeah and, but again fr- from the psychological perspective that makes sense. When you have power, when things have been built for you, when things have been set up for you, there's not an incentive immediately for you to acknowledge that you're the fish in water and that you're wet and that other people have had barriers. 
So I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the white anti-racist folks, a lot have been Jewish because I think being Jewish gives them a, a real clear window into the experience of oppression. Um, and a number have been theologians. And I think, again, because there's that big push of seeing the humanity. And if we understand what racism is, racism dehumanizes. Racism literally shapes us to not see the humanity and the inherent dignity and worth in Black bodies in particular and people of color broadly. And and Dr. Banks, this has not been my focus point. I would say that, you know, I've always been raised to love everybody and I've had a lot of wonderful encounters and I fought, you know, individual fights, right? I've, I've not, but not systematic fights. My, mm -hmm. my battle for the rest, for the, the first part of my life has all been about trying to fix my culture, not specifically as a white person, but specifically as a Christian. Because mm. what I've been exposed to is the ridiculous, uh, hypocrisy in the Christian culture where we say we follow Jesus. Well, what Jesus are we talking about? Because a lot of people get this image of Jesus that he's like this very, very bleached Jesus. I don't know why that Middle Eastern man has such bright skin and, you know, looks the way that he does. And he's very legalistic, kind of rule oriented. And, and you know, he's, he's got these really nice robes on. And I'm like, what? What Jesus, he was a homeless guy. He was a revolutionary. That he, hung out with people that you, you, you would judge, that he flipped tables, <laughs> you know? And I, yeah. Are you familiar with the work of James Cone? No. So he is a black, black liberation theologist okay. who you, you might be intrigued by because it's kind of like the intersection of you as a theologist and, and, and then this world that you're entering in terms of race. I have been, I, I'm, I have so much more to go, I'm sure, not only learning, but also like taking the knife in here and going like, okay, where are the judgments? Because I know I've got them and I feel them. And every once in a while I go, ooh, like I'll be, I'll be listening to these conversations and I'll react to something, you know, or, or for instance, even there will be a, a person of color that will say something really negative on one of my posts. And there's this, ooh, how good, you know, and then I go, okay, wait a second, sit in that for a second and go, where could they? And, I, and again, this is the hard part because I, I know I can't understand their journey. I can't. All right. I can try, but I'll never fully understand it. So it's like, okay, how can I think through enough to be able to give that, that room, that grace to say, okay, I don't get everything that they're thinking and going through, and I'm reacting this way. Why am I reacting this way? And why might they be? And it might. Yeah, and that's, that's a hard, it's hard back and forth work. And the reality is we all have biases. We all have biases. We all have prejudices. And so it's not that we're trying to aim to rid ourselves of them. We're trying to aim to be able to manage them and to yeah. reflect on them yes. and decide Absolutely. if we want to act on them because that judgment doesn't have to be acted on. And I'll say this and too. I'll, 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 I'll confess this moment. Um, when my friend sent me, it was a recorded, I don't even know who it was, but it was a recorded thing of this woman describing the story of Breonna Taylor. Hmm. And I 
man, I just watched the video of uh, Ahmad, you know, not days ago. And then I'm, and I'm a very empathetic person. So like, I feel the pain when I hear it in the voices of individuals. And there was this moment that I was like, I don't want to look at this. I don't want to listen to this. And then I thought, I don't have to. And that was what scared me is like, I could totally close my eyes. And I also want to say that that you don't have to watch every video. Like I, I like mm. to just make sure people know, like you, if that hits you in a place that that you are having trouble sleeping or it haunts you, that you can care about these issues and not watch every video. Because for some people that also is a way that kind of sensitizes them or, or is, helps them to dehumanize the black body if we're constantly seeing it treated in awful ways. So that self-reflection is key because you got to know yourself. But the fact that you're willing to, to step into the conversation and keep listening is key. I, I do think, though, there's a balance there. And I'm sure you know that because like, I don't know, I can't even remember what movie it is, but I remember there was somebody being killed in a movie and there was a father and he's like, no, no, I want you to watch because you need to learn. And, you know, it, yes, not like this is going to be great. Watch this execution. But like, this is the horror. And I mean, thinking back to Vietnam, like Vietnam was the awaking moment for most Americans to say, oh, actually, actually, war isn't good. Because right. I'm watching this on a screen and this is horrible. This is right. nothing but, like the propaganda videos we saw in World War II where everything looked like really chummy and great. Like, oh, oh we're just going to fight. Like, this is great. Exactly. And yet we didn't need to see every massacre in every yeah. village to know that massacring was wrong, right? Sure. Like, so you're right. It's a balance and it's knowing yourself. I really appreciate you for taking the time to talk to me. And I more appreciate your willingness to jump into a conversation to run and to listen to instructions <laughs> and yeah. yeah to be a white guy that's willing to engage race and racism hopefully this has inspired you to think about how you can leverage your privilege follow us wherever you find your podcasts or on twitter facebook youtube or instagram at dr kira banks thanks for joining us on raising equity mm -hmm.